listening to Around Comics. Chicago, this is Around Comics, the comic culture podcast where we talk about everything in and around the world of comics and comics culture. I'm your host, Christopher Neesman, and I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Mr. Brian Salas. I'm floating away in Chicagoland and not in I know, way. it's time to build a boat. I got yeah. nine, nine inches of rain in the last 18 hours here in Milwaukee. Mil- <laughs> is that the city of rain? Is Milwaukee, what does Milwaukee stand for? Is that, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I forget Stinky the scene water? out of uh, I forget the scene out of Wayne's World oh. where Alice Cooper. I think it's like you know Explains. the good earth. I think is that it. The good place or something. Enough of that talk. Enough of that. Our guest. Enough of that. Uh, because speaking of talking, we have a wonderful guest this week. It is a uh, uh, old friend in comics. Uh, I, I don't know if he's ever been on the show before. I know we've talked plenty at conventions and and all sorts of other stuff uh mr jim rug jim how you doing i'm doing great guys thanks for having me here have you ever been a guest on the show before i think i've been on a podcast i don't think i've done a video since you've been doing video i don't think i've been here yeah this is this is new for us so it's a your select group you're like our third guest the world did not see enough of us before now they need to watch us do this faces for radio jim Faces for radio. Three fa- three uh, guests in makes me kind of a guinea pig. So I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. But uh, you know, as always with around comics, it's basically whoever we can convince to come on. You know, it's don't don't feel too good about crook. it. Don't don't feel too bad about it. You know, yeah. we can get you. On. It's like, it's like right Andy now, Andy Parks, Tony Moore, and you now. I think. Oh, that's pretty good company. I'll take that. Oh, and we don't and mess Tim around. Seeley, we had Tim Seeley and Tom King. Oh. Oh yeah, we yeah Tom King and and Tim Seeley. Jeez, so. Just Just like, that's a good list. He forgets about the writers. He doesn't like writers. <laughs> I'm getting old, Sal. I'm yeah. forgetful. See, I I don't think of of Tim and and Tom as as guests. They're you know they're in the family. Does that sound good? <laughs> sure. Is that a good cleanup? Way to way to cover your ass on that. There you go. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom King's going to be back with the Comics 101. Well, we still have. Some work to do. We did our first one. Uh, I'm done with my work. Yeah. I had, this the, guy, I had so, the biggest lift. So, Jim, uh, Chris makes a challenge to Tom King. Because Tom was a fan of the show before he became a big DC Comics writer and everything. Eisner winning. Yeah. And he loved when we used to do these episodes, Comics 101, when we would sort of delve into the history of a certain subject or a book or a writer or whatever it was. And he said he always missed that we didn't do those anymore. So we made a challenge to him. Chris decided if we did three comics, one one episodes, new ones, he would have to come on and do one for um, Adam strange. So Chris being Chris, he picks the eight issue run of Roy Thomas and Neil Adams, X-Men like 10 to 11 his... issues, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. It took you about what? 15 minutes to do research for that. 
one interview with Roy Thomas on comics. Uh, what, what's that old magazine? The uh, I can't think of the uh, Comics Insider. Or whatever. It was a lot of research, and yeah. we squeezed a two-hour episode out. I That's other- brilliant. I, I, that that makes sense to me. I, I do a podcast. We do one issue for an hour, so eight to <laughs> ten issues. This is true. That's an epic. <laughs> Which, speaking of, uh, what everyone know out there, they probably already know what podcast you uh, you host or co-host. What what podcast is it? It's Cartoonist Kayfabe, and I co-host it with Ed Piscor, another Pittsburgh-based cartoonist. And uh, you guys come out of Chicago, we come out of Pittsburgh, and we've been doing it for over a year. So it's on YouTube also. It's also available as a podcast, most of the episodes, wherever people listen to these things. Uh, you can find us there, Cartoonist Kayfabe. It's, nice. It's basically the only comic book podcast I listen to anymore. And... I generally get upset because you guys do a great job and you make me spend <laughs> money on stuff. And I hate you for making me. I just ordered the absolute uh, or the uh, what was the last one you just did? The um, absolute Batman year one. Yeah, I, ju- I-, I listened to 10 minutes of you guys fawning over it and your excitement. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful book. I-, I just when I'm on and ordered it, I'm like, yep, yeah, OK, I'll just order that. I, I have uh, another one, some other book uh, absolute you did. And I'm like, OK, I'm just going to order it. You you guys are infectious with it. You two, your your excitement and enthusiasm for comics is is awesome. We're old enough that I think we started reading before good design and production really were part of comics. <laughs> and now, and, and also things would be out of print. So, you know, depending on what you were into, it could be almost impossible to track this stuff down. And I've just never adjusted to this era now where almost everything is in print and it's designed well, it's produced well, the reproduction is, is often the best it's ever been. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy shop <laughs> in terms of comics and what's available now. So... Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, we're not going to run out of things to showcase anytime soon. <laughs> and I, uh, I loved the. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to fawn. No. I, this is my no, chance. Fawn, fawn, to, fawn away. I, I, to fawn on on you because uh, I love. I do. I love your podcast. I think it's great. And and uh, the, I loved the episode you did on the Outlaw comics. And I think you are the only other people I've ever heard talk about grips. That was, I remember, like, I was trying to explain that book to Chris years ago, because I'm like, there was this crazy, super violent black and white comic. I don't know who did it. I never saw it again. I, like, had, you know, five issues of it when I was, I don't in, in my 20s, and, and I loved it at that time, and I, I've never even seen it again. And then, sure enough, it pops up on, on one of your episodes. It, it, yeah, it's popped up on more than one. Um, you know, it's Tim Vigil's first work. So like we interviewed him at one point that was a big thrill to me. I don't know how much you guys are into Faust, but that was a really important comic to me as a kid because I found it when I was probably too young to have it. But as an adult, like I've talked to other cartoonist friends and it's surprising, like we all knew that book somehow, you know, it was it was like the dirty movie or something that everybody would try to rent behind their parents back. Right. Like we all knew it. And so you know, over the years, I became a fan of Tim Vigil's track down different things. And grip is like his grips is like his first thing. And uh, I did a video drawing grips. It was kind of a, a, a uh, sped up version of me inking this drawing of grips. Nice. But you know, the great story with grips, the character in the comic, the vigilante is a cartoonist. So like his day job is he draws oh, yeah. comics and the comic book that he draws is fat ninja. And so <laughs> Silverwolf also published that comic book. It's such a cool concept. 
my wife is a fan of the concept, not necessarily a fan of either book, <laughs> hasn't read either of the books, it's very meta. but she loves that concept. And it is, it is kind of cool, you know, that the character in one comic is doing this comic that you can buy. And, you know, Fat Ninja is kind of like Beverly Hills Ninja, the Chris Farley movie in a lot of ways. And uh, even the timing kind of lines up, right? So it's a so, fun story. So in the production of Fat Ninja, who actually is titled as the writer and artist of Fat Ninja? Is it? That's a good question because it's not. Well, Chris Silver is 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 titled as the creator of everything in Silverwolf. Um, I can't remember who the artist is on Fat Ninja, and if they, you know, if it's the same, if they use the name, you know, like if they kayfabe right, right. that it's actually the artist from the character from Grips. I I also love that you guys use the wrestling term in your pod, the kayfabe. The, that whole concept is is fascinating to me. To the, and and it's perfect. It, it, what you guys have done with that show is just all right. All right, I'm done. I'm done <laughs> fawning over over the podcast. Burn this podcast off right now and go listen to this one because it's obviously much better than yeah. Ours. It is. It is. It's much better. So just go. Yeah, you can just go listen to theirs and and quit wasting your time with us clowns. Well, kind of spinning off of that, Jim. You you have such an amazing love of of like. 90s independent comics i mean i mean obviously a lot of your career it gets sewn back to the 70s and we'll talk about aphrodisiac and and uh and your new kickstarter uh comic uh, octobriana which we're going to talk about uh a lot i hope but this is one of my favorite things that is yours but not yours that i i picked up and i think it was at, at challengers whenever you were you were signing there this is just a, a bw black and white um, talk a little bit about this little treasure. All right, great. I'm glad you bring that up, Chris. I started, uh, you know, I like back issue diving and bin diving. And once the internet made comics available, I kind of went through my list of, you know, whatever my dream comics were and tracked down a lot of them. And I started to get real excited going to these like unsorted dollar boxes and 50 cent sales and just pulling out things that I had never seen before. Like my biggest favorite thing to find in comics is something new that I, I don't know about or looks different than anything I've seen. And I start pulling out like the eighties black and white comics. You know, what happens is those things just get devalued. You know, like when I started buying them, that was like the worst comics on earth, you know, was the eighties black and white explosion and then implosion comics. So I was finding them for, you know, anywhere from 10 for a dollar up to a dollar and just buying them. It, most of them I had never heard of. There were so many produced. And for anybody that's not familiar with the black and white explosion, in the mid 80s, after the turtles came out, and they were super successful, everybody was like, we can just self publish our own black and white comic. It's really inexpensive to make those. And then there were like 18 or 19 comic distributors, and you could distribute through all of them. Everybody was looking now for the next turtles. So all these black and white comics were published all over the place. You know, it was no longer had to be out of New York City. And they just flooded the market. This lasted for a couple years. And then everybody was like, these are garbage. You know, we're done ordering them. And, and then it collapsed. You know, all these publishers went away and self-publishers stopped. And a lot of them only published one or two issues because, you know, it, it, was, it was a roll of the dice. Exactly. We actually were talking about uh, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle uh, Artisan Edition I just got from IDW mm -hmm. and continue to to say that TMNT was pro maybe the most influential comic of the 80s in, in a lot of different ways. But because of because of that like onslaught of independent creators that it said, hey, yeah, go go try it out. 
It really was. And, you know, we've been talking to guys that came out of Mirage. So like Steve Bissett's and Rick Veach's and then Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird go on to form Tundra on one hand, which publishes all kinds of people, Alan Moore, Bill Sienkiewicz, Scott McCloud, The Crow. And then on the other hand, Peter Laird does the Zurich Foundation that publishes young cartoonists for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, like maybe a dozen a year. So, you know, they had this huge influence on self-publishing and even on image comics guys, because they just started, you know, when you think of creator ownership, those guys were pretty loud and big examples of successes in creator ownership. Mm -hmm. So to get back to that zine that you were holding up, Chris, (laughs) I started buying this stuff because it was like, I had never seen it before. And my friends didn't know what it was. Usually they might know one or two and be like, Oh, look for, you know, look for barbarian tales or something. (laughs) But for the most part, it was just like random, you know, it'd be a cool cover or I'd flip through it and be like, this art looks good. Let's take this home and see who this is. And in a lot of cases, they might've only made one or two comic books. You know, it's, it's, it's really fun. And it's part of what I like about when I was a kid, I would buy comics at a flea market. So it kind of brings me back to that of just this random, whatever happens to be in that dollar box, grab a couple that look interesting and go with it. And honestly, I just, you know, they they speak to me because it's usually one or two people doing everything themselves, not really following rules because they don't know any better. And it's just kind of entertaining, different looking comics. So that zine then was, Uh, Me putting together interesting panels and pages and collaging things from these comics, ads and uh, editorial pages, you know, all these different pieces that I just thought were interesting and put them together into a zine called BW zine uh, for black and white. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how that came about. So it's, it's kind of my celebration of what I'm pulling out of what look like junk boxes, but I don't know. They speak to me. (laughs) What can I say? It's awesome. It's it's the one book that you can uh, that you can buy from you like at a convention that you won't sign. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I've really done on that book is the cover. Everything else is just it's found material. I've excavated it, if you will. <laughs> you're, you're a comic archaeologist. <laughs> I watch uh, th- there was a documentary years ago called Scratch, and it was about DJs that would go into like these record store basements and attics, you know, looking for the best records and sometimes sorting through like rat carcasses to find them. I feel a real kinship to that in that BW is, is the fruits of those labors. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you about your, I mean, obviously you, you seem to have a love of the seventies, you know, and a lot of the stuff that you do I for DJAC, obviously. And, and I think uh, just, you seem to have a kinship with it, but you're, you're, not really old enough to have grown up in the seventies, right? Like you, I, I was wondering, did you have like older siblings? Cause I grew up kind of in the seventies, but I was, you know, I was. Sal's the elder states, to, statesman to like, here. By at least a couple years. years. Yeah. <laughs> but I had older sisters and, you know, so like all, all the music that they listened to and, and the things that they were into, I obviously, you know, was attracted to. So I was wondering how did, how did they come How did your love of the seventies come about? Well, I was born in 77, so I don't remember it firsthand, but I grew up, um, you know, it was pre-internet. So like in the 80s where I grew up, it was a very, it would have been a, um, like a small rural setting in, in southwestern Pennsylvania. And it was like we were years behind, you know, cultural centers or something <laughs> right. like that. Um, and especially, you know, like I was watching stuff, old movies on TV. So it wasn't like it was new stuff. It would have been the things from the 70s. You know, it would have been those kind of staples that were crossing my path. 
Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had an older sister, but it's, she wasn't like sending movies my way or or great (laughs) music or anything, but it was just what I could find, you know, like in the middle of nowhere, like in a, you know, in a small rural area, you're kind of stuck with whatever you can get on that television or whatever you find in flea markets. When video stores showed up in the, in the mid eighties, that was huge. But a lot of that stuff would have been, you know, movies from the seventies and things. So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of that developed naturally. And then as I got older and I got to, you know, like track down things that I had heard of or find whatever I wanted to watch and read, the 70s did, you know, like I did feel a kinship to that. Even though I was probably a little bit younger, a lot of the stuff I was consuming would have been a few years older. So, you know, I'm watching movies from the 70s and the 80s. Right. It all kind of works out in the end. Well, I, sure. always- I, I, grew, I grew up in Southern Illinois and it's kind of the same thing. I found Doctor Who through PBS and the comics that I was reading were like Burn Claremont X-Men from like the mid late seventies. And this is in the mid eighties. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's a hard thing to explain. I think to people now with, you know, phones and smartphones and, you know, whatever you think of, you can instantly look up and watch and read. It just wasn't that way. It was like, you were stuck with whatever you could find. And in the (laughs) middle of nowhere with no car, it was like, you know, a, a good garage sale would have would have gotten me through three months. Like, oh, sure. It just wasn't I, uh, a place to go. I didn't find comic book stores until I was about 15 or 16 is about when Image started. And I needed those comics. Like I was, man, I was hooked at that point. I had to have them. So once I got a driver's license, I was able to drive like 45 minutes to a comic book store. And that really opened everything. And oh, wow. before that, it would be kind of a special occasion because I knew where the comic book store was. I just wasn't old enough to drive. So I'd get there a couple of times a year, which is when I found Faust, probably, you know, 13 or 14, my parents take me and drop me off for an hour, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a real special rare occasion. And I would have to make hard choices, you know, like I might've had 20 bucks and that's it. Um, you know, so my head would be spinning around with things I'd never heard of or seen. Six months of issues that you're going to stock up on. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that, you know, go ahead. ahead, It brings up, you know, something I've, I've thought about in the past of like, you know, I grew up, in an era where there was three, four TV channels and whatever my dad wanted to watch, that was what was on the TV. Like there was no other choice. So I grew up watching Westerns and black yes. and white movies and, and and that kind of thing and grew up with a appreciation for that stuff that I still love today. But like my kids, you know, if they don't like what I'm watching, there's, you know, their phone and their computer, they can, they can put on whatever they want. Usually it's some YouTube video, which now I taught them that I'm a YouTube influencer. <laughs> and they... <laughs> I'm sure they're watching you on their phones. No, never. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it's neat kind of thinking back on that. I don't want to, you know, say, Oh, back in the old timey days, whenever we would buy a comic and now uh, you'd have to read that comic over and over, but it's kind of, how it was i mean you weren't you know i wasn't making weekly trips to the comic shop and buying you know five eight twelve comics a week and just kind of digesting them and i think a lot of you know you you were talking earlier that i mean we're at a time where we have so much available to us that i think we consume a lot of of entertainment and and comics you know i remember you know there i have comics in my collection that are so dog-eared from reading over and over and over again. And I'll come across panels that I know as an aspiring artist, you know, before I decided to become a graphic designer, you know, I wanted to be a comic book artist and I would draw panels over and over and over again. Those, those pages and panels are burnt into my 
into my brain. And I think that limited availability of comics really kind of fed into that. Yeah, one of uh, when we first started Cartoonist Kayfabe, Ed made a video about an X-Men comic from his childhood. I think it was from the Extinction Agenda, but it had that quality, that dog-eared quality where like you would you would see him as he flipped through it where the pages just had no stiffness at all. You know, like it had been read so many times, it was just like just <laughs> this broken in, you know, worn out comic book. And I'm the same way. When I started reading them, I used to keep them in a shoebox and I'd have maybe a dozen comics and I'd get a new one, you know, and then I'd be carrying that, that box around. And it was just rereading the same stuff over and over copying the same, you know, the same drawings again and again. Um, I, you know, I, that, that was great. I love that stuff. And it's such a different time. Now I accumulate so many comics from stuff that people send us or things that I decide I have to have, you know, and you're able to track them down now instantly that I can't read everything anymore. And it's, yeah. it's so, I, I don't know. It's a weird thing. Like I, it's, it's not a thing to complain about in any way. It's like, I have too many comics, you know, I can't wonderful keep up. and horrible. It, it really is though. You know, I end up missing, I, I miss so much, but I think everybody does too, you know, and you'll hear recommendations from people and you hear the same recommendation three or four times. And then that gets to the top of my pile. You know, I, I realize like, that's usually my indicator, especially if it's something a little off the beaten path. If I hear about it twice in the same week from different people, it's kind of like that's my cosmic sign to uh, go ahead and watch that movie or read that book or comic if it if it pops up two or three times. Were you uh, were you always uh, into you know more underground comics and and black and white stuff, outlaw comics, or or was there a time where you you know were reading main, you know more mainstream superhero stuff or that kind of thing? Yeah, I started out with mainstream because I was reading them, you know, I, my first comic I bought at a drugstore. So, you know, I was reading off of the newsstand. There was a gas station where I would buy like Wolverine number 10. I distinctly remember buying at a gas station by my house because they would get a few comics in, um, you know, but that's what I had. Like I didn't have the comic book store. So it would just be like, you know, there was a, there was a magazine you shop. Could find something. I remember, I remember that same thing. It was like, there was a Seven Eleven and a like pharmacy next to each other in my town. And like, they would carry different comics. They each have a, had a spinner rack and then there yep. was a comic book store, but then there would be like, there might be a couple of packs at the JC pennies or there, you know, yes. so wherever you could like, you know, find you hustle around town. You did, to you stuff. did. Yeah. And, and it was, it was surprising. Like, especially you start buying those multi-packs or whatever you, you, you might get some, that would be the time you would hear or find something new that you didn't even know existed, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that stuff. And it's part of why I still dig through those 50 cent boxes looking for that thing that I don't know I need or want, or even that it exists. But I went through the normal stuff, you know, like I was a Marvel when I first started reading, it was Marvel and it was a great time for Marvel. It was right, I guess, shortly after Jim Shooter left. And so like you had my, my first new mutants was new mutants 87. It was the first cable. Um, And I was on board, you know, Rob Liefeld inked by Todd McFarlane on the cover. And it was like, yes, and I, I was following artists from really early on. So I recognized, you know, a handful of these guys. My first X-Men was Jim Lee, uh, X-Men 248. It was a fill-in. It was like Jim Lee's first X-Men ever. It was a fill-in issue uh, by him. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, just very random that this is, you know, these are the books that I got. <laughs> but it was a cool time period. I can remember picking up, I think it was 
New Mutants 100 double-sized final issue, you know, getting ready for X-Force. Oh, yeah. And, like, Uncanny X-Men 275 double issue, Jim Lee. And it was, like, the greatest week of my <laughs> life, you know, through age 16 or 17 or something. Till some girl talked to me. That was probably the highlight of, uh, of my life up to that point. Um, but, you know, like, it was a really good, if you're buying off the news, if, if you're buying off a rack, like, from newsstands, it was a pretty good time period. McFarlane, you know, he was finishing up Amazing Spider-Man when I started reading Spider-Man and then started on Spider-Man. So I loved all those guys. You know, like I said, when image whenever image starts, that's whenever it's like, okay, I've got to find a comic book store because I've got to get these things. Yep. And that exposed me to everything. You know, I love that book, man. And I did not expect to, but that was the one that I, out of all that first image run, Savage Dragon was the one after I had read everything. It was like, that's it, you know, and that was was a real different book. You know, it was like an R-rated superhero coming from a guy who was reading Marvel and DC. That was big, man. And I was the right age for it, you know, where it was like, I wanted to hear by, you know, I wanted to hear these superheroes cussing and super violent and stuff. It just all is the kind of movies I was watching too. You know, and so that's, that's nineties and out of all those, what spawn and Savage Dragon are still running. Yeah, it's, are, there, uh, are there any others? Out of, that's those are really the two that that survived, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. you know, everybody Ups else and had their studios, and and it seemed like probably as things collapsed, it just wasn't worth their time to draw the comics, and it just became like properties or whatever. Sure. When did you start thinking you wanted to make comics, or when did you start making comics? The very first comic I bought before I got home, I saw the credits in the front. And was like somebody, somebody's a penciler or, or an artist on this. And I was drawing, you know, like I was the kid in school that was always drawing, but I was drawing like movie characters, wrestlers. So I was drawing stuff that looked like comics. I just wasn't reading comics. Once I got hold of the comics, it was like, hold up my notebook here, hold up the comic here. This is me. So <laughs> I always say, like, before I got home from that first comic, you know, buying that first comic, that's what I wanted to do. And it really never changed. And that's what led me to the indies. You know, so I went from like liking all these Marvel guys and seeing image with early computer coloring and stuff. That was all great. But I was it didn't look like what I was drawing in my sketchbooks. So when I get to like some black and white comics, it Mm. was like, all right, now we're getting closer. Like this is this this looks like what I do. And I was getting bored with the Marvel stuff at that point. You know, you they would cycle through those stories where it's like, okay, each year Venom comes back or each year, you know, whatever is repeated. And after a couple of cycles, I was just done with those. If I didn't find indie comics, I probably would have moved on to something else. But I found indie comics. And then it was like, all right, this is this is Frank Miller was the first guy that I really was into. And he was away whenever I started reading comics. So like I got all of his back issues. I traded a bunch of Rob Liefeld New Mutants for Frank Miller's Daredevil run. <laughs> that worked out pretty well. Um, <laughs> but he comes back about the time that I start getting access to comic book stores. He's doing Sin City. Yeah. And, and Sin City, man, it blew my mind because like one, it's just him. So that was a big revelation. And then the lettering looked a little bit weird. You know, like it, it looked just weird enough that it, it something in my brain clicked where it was like, oh, OK, it doesn't have to be perfect or it doesn't have to look like Marvel. And I loved Sin City. So it was like now I'm seeing this comic with some rough edges or the lettering looks, you know, different. It's not as smooth and perfect. And you know, it was just on at that point. I started ordering things like from kitchen sink and tundra catalogs through the mail to try to get this stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. And it was all those black and white books. And 
you know, I mean, that's, that's what I was doing. I had no idea how you were going to color. I had no computer, you know, it's, it just was beyond me. It, it was so hard to like make my drawings look like those published polished comic books. That's such so, a good point because it, 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 it was an exciting time because there were so many books coming out and it was like, Oh, it doesn't have to look like Sal Buscema. It doesn't have to look like those guys that, that are great. It doesn't have to look like John Byrne. You know, it's like, Oh, there's other ways to make comics and that was really exciting to a lot of people that, that to sort of realize, oh, I could do this. Maybe this is something I can do, too. So it yeah, was that... huge. And and for trying to make stuff, I, I couldn't use certain tools or I didn't have the right tools. And so you'd find this indie book like I remember Dead World by Vince Locke. And it was like these scratchy lines like, you know, it was like a pen that he was drawing with or something. And again, it just kind of looked like me. The crow was huge because there was all kinds of media, you know, so like I'd look at the crow and be like, what's you can do like a painting or something in the middle of this, or this is like a pencil drawing. It's you know, it was just eye opening. <laughs> well, yeah. I see that Bill Sankevich Electra on your uh, door behind <laughs> yes. me. So I'm sure that was, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, talk about use of media and, and doing something different. I mean, that was, I remember, I remember sort of hating his stuff when it first hit because it was so different and I didn't quite, understand it and it was like what what am i looking at but it was it was only a matter of time before it was like sal and i are both just old enough to have bought that new off the shelves oh for sure do you remember what was your reaction to that chris um i was such a he knew it was brilliant the moment he saw it no i was such a frank miller fan (laughs) but i was also a big john byrne fan and so the first time I saw Electra Assassin, I was like, this is some weird looking shit. It was, yeah, it was not a fall in love with it right away. It was, it was, I, it's the first time I had ever seen a painted comic. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, okay, this is, this is different. And it was also the realization my parents probably shouldn't know that I'm <laughs> reading this. <laughs> Yeah, I I am always curious about how these comics land when they come out, because that's a book I came to later, Watchmen, Dark Knight. You know, those books had been out for a few years before I got hold of them. So they were already, you know, they were already a certain thing. Like comics had reacted to them in a lot of ways, especially Watchmen and Dark Knight. DKR probably prepared us for that a little bit more because DKR didn't look like anything else that was out and it was adult. And so by the time that, that Electro Assassin comes out, I think you were, you were probably primed to not be like, what the fuck is this? And throw it aside. It was, you knew that something, not me. I hated it. I I think there was a lot of negative reaction to it. And like we interviewed Bill Sienkiewicz (laughs) and in my mind, it's like, this is one of the greatest comics, you know, like in a lot of ways, one of the most impressive comics I've ever read. And I think it holds oh. up well over time. Oh, yeah. But I don't think that was the reaction. And no. so, like, when I would talk to him about it, when we interviewed him, it seemed like in his brain, it was a different reception to that book than in my brain, where I'm like, this is one of the monumental, you know, first painted comic and, you yeah. know, mixing media and doing all these different things that just, I don't know where else they were done. And now they're done everywhere. And so, you know, in my mind, it's this important classic. But I yes. felt like he had like scar tissue from when it came out. And I think he described it as like, like there was nothing. There was like no sound whenever it came out. No, you know, like, like people just didn't know what to do. But, you know, in a time whenever you and I think a lot of people were damaged cartoonists by the reception of Dark Knight and Watchmen. You know, I think that those books came out and they were so huge and recognized as huge instantly that a lot of other really great work from around that time period 
it was kind of like, well, you know, we talked to Howard Chaikin and he had this reaction about American flag, which in my mind is like, that's this book, another classic that changes everything. And his reaction was just much less like it was that giant <laughs> monumental change. And I think it's because you're sharing a studio with Frank Miller and you're watching like a supernova, you know, <laughs> going past you in the background. And so maybe it, it changes the way you measure, you know, a book like American flag, but historically, like I look at it and think there's so much in American flag that's still around in comics today. Oh yeah. That was the book. Well, I've talked about it ad nauseum on the podcast about that was the book that changed my thinking of comics like oh comics are not what i thought they were they can be a lot different they can be something yeah i love i love that book to this day i still and and talking to to howard chankin was one of my favorite things ever he's just such a great guy but i wanted to ask you about your work and your style of of art and because you styles styles yes i should say that styles and and I, I'm always curious, Jeffrey Brown is a guy who we've had on the show multiple times and, you know, Jeffrey's work when he's, you know, most of his books are very cartoonish, sort of simple. I, I don't want to say that in, in a derogatory term. That's a, it's they're, they're Jeffrey Brown. It's he has, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his work, I, yeah. I, but it's not, it, he can do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. And he chooses to do that. And and I look at your work and it's like, okay, you know, Street Angel is in a certain style, but then you come out with these pen drawings on notebook paper that are incredibly detailed and super real, you know, hyper realistic. And it's like, wow, this guy can do whatever the hell he wants to do. So I'm just kind of curious, like, is it a, you know, with something like Street Angel or, or, you know, obviously Aphrodisiac is a little different because there was a, there was a mood that you were trying to capture, I think with that. But is it more of a production thing? Or is it more of a, um, you know, getting the work done as quickly as possible? Or is it a stylistic thing or, or a combination of those things? Um, <clears throat> it's probably a combination of all those things. I do tend to think it's hard for me to identify my own style. You know, I, I tend to try to make things visually work based on the story. Um but if I were thinking of style, that would be it. Is this like, it's a package, you know, um, Chris, you probably understand that as a graphic designer where it's kind of like all of the pieces I'm going for that package, that finished complete thing. Yeah. Um, some of it does reflect, like I have a new idea on how to do this. So as an artist, I want to try this new thing. Right. Um, and some of it is just, you know, like street angel is a good example because I had done street angel as a traditional pen and ink, black and white type of book. That was the first published thing I did. And I love guys like Charles Burns and Dan Clowes and, you know, all these people that I think of as really in control of that ink line. Whenever I did the image street angel series, it was a full color series and it was, you know, over 10 years later. And I had just taken in so much more art. I started looking at picture books, which were, have become a big influence on me. And, you know, production and color changed. Like when I was started out, if you were doing indie books, they were black and white. That was it because of, cost and technology and all these things whenever i get to like doing street angel at image you can do anything you can come up with you know you're you're you have access like i'm delivering them files that they will just kind of look at and then send on to the printer and i've had you know that's most of my relationships uh with ad house when i did aphrodisiac it's like here are finished files you know please look them over because they're kind of weird <laughs> but you know they were prepared to go to the printer um you know so like it's a huge amount of control you know it's not just drawing, like you get to do everything, the pre-production, you know, right. really get it ready to print. 
Um, it's the reason I'm doing Octobriana 1976. Because of that kind of control, you get these ideas where it's like, well, I can do this production method and it will yield these results. What, what story would fit this thing that I think will look cool? So sometimes I have that idea of okay. like, there's just a method that I have in mind. Like for, um, for Octobriana in 1976, the whole concept is it's a blacklight comic. It's going to be printed with, instead of CMY ink colors, it's going to be printed with fluorescent ink colors. And so like, this was an idea I've been carrying around for it's years groovy, and years man, trying to groovy. find the right story for it. Um, you know, so that's what well, I'm so thinking how, of. How many, how many, from a graphic design standpoint, how many colors are you printing in this thing? Because they're right. spots. It's all spot color, right? It is all spot colors. I'm I'm literally replacing the CMY with uh, the fluorescent blue, um, yellow, and pink, and okay. plus the black. But with fluorescent inks, you need to hit them twice. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called like charging them, and that's what yep. gives them their actual fluorescent quality. So it's a, it's that's a, a little a double, bit tricky. It's a double hit to to make yes. them opaque enough, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it's almost like seven colors, and that you're running two of those three colors twice. Um, and then from that, my palette is almost like, I think I have around eight main colors that I'm working with. And so those colors are, you know, would represent mixes, right? It's almost like your crayon box as a kid. So like I have an orange, which is, you know, yellow, a little bit of and, orange, and a little bit of pink, you yes. know, makes a, you it's know. a good green in there. <laughs> so, um, I don't know if that, if that answers your, your question, Brian. Uh, no, for sure. I, I like I said, it, I was just curious, um, you know, just on the ideas of different things. And that makes perfect sense. Once you said it, it made absolute sense to me that you're, you're looking at it as a a complete thing. You're looking at, this is a story from, you know, front to back page and you have even cover to cover, man. It is a book, you know, it's, it's really a whole, a whole piece. And with street angel, I had been looking at like, like pencil art was something that you really couldn't reproduce. Well, uh, whenever I was coming up, you know, you would see occasionally Gene Colon or somebody they'd reproduce as pencils yeah. and it was neat, but it wasn't done very, you know, like it was hard to do from a production standpoint, say sure. in the eighties. And so now you can do it. You can reproduce almost any mark really, really well now. And so once I started playing with color, I was like, the color works better, especially if you're sort of, you know, blending colors and doing some things other than, than just flat colors. It works really well with the pencil line. I don't think it works as well with a flat black line, like an ink line, if you're doing modeling and textures and stuff in the color, because the black line is so flat next to like gradients and, you know, light sources and all these things. But I found the pencil line works really well because it has some texture, it has some value differences. And so that was part of like some of the Street Angel books at Image are pencil instead of ink. And that's the reason. I just thought it worked better with the color. So. I love the in the in the first Street Angel storyline. I some of my favorite parts is, is like you'd go from these wild, crazy fight scenes or something, you know, very loose and sort of eclectic, and then all of a sudden there'd be this one panel that was a close up, and it was like, oh, there's like there's some Charles Burns sort of like really highly rendered inclines. I'm like, that's awesome. I I just. I love that juxtaposition in the middle of a page of just like, oh, wait a minute, that's like a completely different look right there. But it made so, it worked so well. I loved it. Yeah, I, I wear a lot of influences on my sleeve. I think. <laughs> well, so I, I mean, that's part of if you're if you're going to be able to 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 float between so many different styles. It as a comics fan, it's great to see. Oh, I see a little bit of this guy here, or a little bit of this guy here, and that's you know, I mean, you're kind of like a multi-sport athlete, where it's like, okay, what 
you know, what discipline do you want to show in this project? You know, they're, 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 you know, it's like one of your Pittsburgh buddies, Tom Scholey. Tom is awesome. When you see a Tom piece of art, you know, it's Tom. It's, you know, I, it's, and, and that's, that's him. And that's, he has his style. Um, but you have been able to float between so many different, you know, looks and styles, which I, I think it's always, you know, it's, it's a box of chocolates whenever you get a gym, a gym rug book, which is it, great. It reflects a lot of the stuff I like too. Whenever I, my first book that was published was Street Angel and it was with a small publisher, SLG. We had no budget. We barely sold any. So like I couldn't, yes, I couldn't do anything too fancy. I couldn't hire, you know, Jim Lee to do a back cover or a pinup. But as a reader, like that's what I came up loving, you know, especially like the Marvel DC characters. I really think, you know, if you think of a literary character, it has to do with like character arc and growth. You know, like if you're thinking of a novel in the traditional sense of character and licensed comics just don't do that. Spider-Man, Spider-Man at the end, you know, 30 years in, he's still Spider-Man. And so the way these characters develop, I think, is by having different artists interpret them. And pretty soon you have almost this three dimensional quality to this character. And so I like. I always like seeing different artists, especially artists I like with their interpretations. I like Ditko Spider-Man. I like McFarlane Spider-Man. And, you know, that's part of why I reference all these different styles because it's part of the fun for me. And in a way, it's almost like if you think of a big budget film where it's like now you get this orchestral score or you get these great special effects and set piece, you know, with comics, like what are the equivalent of those things? You know, and it might be doing that super blowout action scene that's scratchy and kinetic everywhere. And then you have that moment, you know, you have that John Woo slow motion of like the birds flying yeah. through the, the chaos and violence. You know, how do you do that in a comic? And maybe you do it switching up styles or having more detail where like now you've slowed down the reading pace because this one panel is just loaded with detail and it causes the reader to slow down. You know, so th- there are tools that can be used, you know, in, in making those comics, too. Um, and, well, and also it's hard to draw characters the same way all the time. <laughs> so you can cover up maybe now the truth comes out. Thank you for <laughs> exactly. saying that. That seems like the, like, I, you know, I, I'm a uh, failed artist, not a very good artist. I, I still draw to this day occasionally. And that was like the thing I could never understand how anybody did that worth a damn. I was like, how do you make this character look the same? I mean, I can understand it with Spider-Man. That's why Spider-Man wears a mask. Yeah, but how <laughs> does Mary Jane look the same? Yeah, I don't, I, I never understood it. it it's, it's a. It's also thing. like, if you think of the image guys that I loved at the time, they would always have these money shots. You know, they were criticized mm-hmm. for having, it's all pinups, right? Like it's just these full page splashes of their all characters pages, looking baby. cool. They're exactly. Benjamins. But there's an equivalent that's like the fun side of sitting at the drawing table that has that, you can translate that same excitement where it's like, you know, I have this idea for a really cool street angel moment here, this image, but maybe it is in a different style than whenever she's hanging out with her friends at school. You know, like this is the badass coming into the fight, you know, the Calvary arriving. Maybe I uh, channel a little bit more of a, you know, of a Jim Lee or a Jack Kirby or something that's, that's switching from like the slice of life, fun kids at school to like the ninja has arrived on a skateboard with a sword. <laughs> yes. When yeah. I want to know before we go back to, cause I want to talk more about the blacklight fluorescent comic, but I want to know when are you going to make a count Dante comic? Because I think it is <laughs> perfect for you. I'm waiting for it. I'll be the first person to buy it. Uh, I, I don't know why there has not already been account Dante comic, but I feel like you are the perfect person to do that story. 
That's got to be near and dear to you guys' heart, right? Like the the bulk of his career is Chicago, South Side of Chicago. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, man, I, I I agree with you. I think that would be an amazing comic. The thought has crossed my mind. Certainly, <laughs> I don't know if you can get away with it. Like I imagine maybe the Black Dragon Society would come after you or something. Uh, <laughs> Those guys are. I don't all know. Like he's he's an amazing character. What a story! I mean, you don't even have to uh, fictionalize much. I mean, that guy's story is so crazy. It's it's Tiger King level of lunacy and, and weirdness and amazing, you know, truly an amazing kind of guy. Um, but it'd be an extraordinary comic. Yeah. I'm surprised it doesn't already exist. And maybe right now people are working on it as they hear us talking. <laughs> Somebody Come needs on. to do one. Someone you're going to need to, you're going to need to beep out this whole section. <laughs> Just cut it. Yeah, Too late. All right. So Jim, there are, there are three comics I have, a tendency to 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 give out to people that I think are are receptive to reading comics that aren't you know Batman, Superman, Spider Man. You know, it's like you you know those folks. It's like, hey, I have I got something that I, I'm I'm gonna let you borrow it, or I actually buy extra copies because I know they never come back to me. It's uh, uh, Rich Kozlowski's The King, which I think is a, a great comic for you know Elvis fans, and you know just sure. kind of. Uh, we're uh, uh, black hole, uh, Man, for like black horror hole. fans and just you know, just kind of off center stuff and aphrodisiac. Those are the those are the three comics that I find myself like giving out or or handing out. Um, you are such an ambassador to comics, and I mean, you stand on that the 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 model of make more comics. What are the comics that you give out to people to say, hey? read this 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 is this is something i think you will dig oh man i don't do a ton of that um ghost world is something i've given out dan Klaus' ghost world of course you know the a movie at this point but uh, also a chicago one there you go um chester brown's i never liked you is a comic book that i've given out these are actual comics I've given to people. So this is kind of good. I, I I don't know if these are the best ones if I thought about it, but and these are ones I've them, actually given people. He wants them back. God damn it. He's giving them <laughs> yes, out. I'm looking for these. I want my records back. Um, the Crow, James O'Barr's The Crow, I gave to my prom date and never got back. No, so no. I ended up rebuying that one. I've actually rebought all these. Um, the, the comic that I've bought the most of in my life, there's two of them. Donna Matrix is one. <laughs> And uh, that's Mike Saints, who uh, wow. did computer comics, the first one being Shatter. Shatter, yes. Um, Donna Matrix is pretty wild. And okay. it's like the early 90s. And it's very, there are scenes from Donna Matrix in the Matrix movie. Um, it's it's strange considering the title and the similarities and like the, the six-year gap or whatever between the two. And then the other one is another Chicago person. It's Radio and Illustrated Guide which Jessica Abel made. She used to do a lot of nonfiction comics out of Chicago, I think is where she started making comics from. Mm -hmm. I remember getting like mini comics that were like her journalistic comics, um, probably in the late nineties, but she teamed up with Ira Glass from This American Life. Mm -hmm. And so for like a, a subscriber giveaway one year, they made this comic radio and illustrated guide. And it goes through an entire episode of This American Life. And it's like an eight-month process from like brainstorming until the thing actually goes on the air. And Ira Glass co-writes it. It's very wordy. It's not the most exciting comic to read. <laughs> but as a how-to for like putting a story together, it's incredible, man. It gets into like Ira's ideas on interviewing people, 
shaping a story, editing. It's 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 a pretty interesting comic, and I've I've bought and handed out lots of those. <laughs> awesome. You, uh, you used to do a pod, or do you still do a podcast on NPR? Didn't you do a podcast? Or- no, I never did one on NPR, but I, I did do a podcast um, called "Tell Me Something I Don't Know." And then like Boing Boing serialized it for a while. Okay, okay. That's or what it was. syndicate, whatever that is. Like Boing Boing hosted and promoted it for a while. Um, I did that for a couple of years because, you know, like you, I, w- I would listen when I started doing comics full time and quit my day job, I was just home alone. And I would look to listen to something, especially when I'm inking or coloring, you know, you can kind of let that part of your brain engage. And so I would listen to whatever I could find, like streaming radio. And then podcast started. And after listening to podcasts nonstop for a couple of years, I had to make one because I was like, <laughs> I, I don't do know. This. These guys are I like to know how things are put together. <laughs> so the easiest way to figure that out is to do it yourself. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We did it because we were like, ah, we know more than these assholes. I mean, we <laughs> but we thought that we knew more than those assholes. Well, my trick was I got a bunch of smart people on my podcast so that I could just learn how to be better at life. So it was it was artists and cartoonists. And it was my chance to kind of like pick their brains and, you know, keep teaching myself how to do this. Nice. Well, that's what we're doing. I've, now. I've got just, one more you, question. I know Sal has a couple wind up. I have one more question. Yeah. I'm done. Um, You're completely um, done. At, Ed Pisker and and Tom Scholey, also Pittsburgh guys, have both done grand designs with Marvel. Are are you gonna are you gonna you know tie the knot and make it the the Pittsburgh you know coalition on grand designs? Is that anything that you're interested in? And if it was, it, what Marvel property would you do? I would be interested in doing that. Um, probably, you know, like I think about this a lot. People ask this a lot. That okay. 70s era of like Marvel horror weird comics is is probably what I would like to do. You know, with Ghost Rider would be kind of the champion of that group. But it's mm-hmm. all like the Son of Satan's, um, you know, that's Werewolf Brother by Night. Exactly. Yeah. It's such a weird era of comics. It's almost like, I don't know, like the editor turned their back or something, you know, because it's whenever <laughs> they get that distro deal ends with DC Comics. And now like Marvel's super popular and now they can publish as many books as they want. And so they just flood it. And it's like they don't have enough editors or something to control stuff. I mean, just like Son of out. Satan is on the on the rack next to Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, I think the, so the CCA restrictions have been lifted, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that era because that's about as weird as you're going to find in, in Marvel <laughs> Comics. I don't know what the grand design like title would be for that, but it's just like 70s. Why, you know, Marvel goes wild or whatever. It's like it's yeah. like the teenage years of Marvel Comics. Yeah, Bronze Age. I would like to do, um, beyond like Marvel, I would like to do a grand design on NWA wrestling because a lot of that stuff predates video, but we have the history of it. And I feel like that would be, that could be really cool. I just finished reading um, The Death of the Territories. You ever read that? That was an interesting I haven't read that. It's pretty good. I read a lot of wrestling books, but I haven't read that one. It's on my, it's on my radar. Is it good? It was pretty good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little dry. I mean, it's not terribly exciting, but it's informative and interesting of just, I didn't know a lot of that history about the territories and then the inevitable, you know, sort of takeover by Vince McMahon and and how he did it and that kind of thing. So that was kind of interesting to me to sort of learn. I had an idea for a story about like, a, a like that era of wrestling. And so I started doing research and I, I came across that book. I, the, I work with a guy who does, 
a very popular wrestling podcast, which I wish I could remember the fucking name of it, but I can't. Remember I will it. look it up. Look it up. But um, yeah, it was. So I read that book, but it, it was it was pretty interesting. It's it's not. Um, it's a little dry because a lot of it is just sort of like the history and this is what was going on in this territory and this is. So there's not a ton of of the, you know, um, awesome stories from from wrestling. Voices of wrestling. Voices of wrestling. Yeah, that's yes. Rich's podcast um we keep promoting other podcasts on here i know <laughs> that's good people need stuff to listen to now while they're working from home <laughs> while they're pretending to be busy working from home <laughs> i love wrestling because of that storytelling part and maybe this will seg a little bit into uh segue into octobriana because there's some similarities there sure. but i read a book on uh mildred burke who was a, a women's champion in wrestling for like 30s 40s and 50s and the, the book was written by an investigative journalist <clears throat> as, as opposed to like a wrestling fan or a wrestling insider. So he was doing research and some of these promoters, their papers are available. I think, I think one of the big promoters out of New York, I think his whole, like all of his papers are at Syracuse or somewhere. I might be wrong on the school, but you can do research, you know, like you can track down some documentation on this stuff. And some of it is public record. You know, some of it was in local newspapers when a big wrestling event right, would right. come to town. And so he goes through this book and like, he'll have stories where there are like three accounts from like a promoter, a manager, um, Mildred, you know, Mildred's side of it. And then like her opponent's side and then like the promoter's side and they're completely different. And as a journalist, it's like, he's finding paperwork from that, from all of their accounts of this and maybe a newspaper account on top of right. it, you know, and they just don't add up. It's like the stories are just completely not the same story, even it's though it's like trying to research a Roy Thomas and Neil Adams comic book. Oh, <laughs> exactly. That's was, exactly what I'm talking about. There are no stories line up here. <laughs> it's amazing though. Like if you're a fan of storytelling, it's incredible to kind of like get that glimpse behind the the journalist struggling with like, well, which account do I go with? And sometimes it would just be like, here's the information. I don't know which of these is reliable. Maybe none of them are reliable. And it's fascinating because like every person involved is put is trying to advance their own narrative. And I mean, this is what, you know, this is what nations do that, that go to war historically, right? Like you go through, you know, and you, and you wipe out the library of the nation you've conquered so that you can put your history on top of it. And that's what these wrestlers would do. So I find that really fascinating where it's like, good luck untangling what the truth of this stuff is, even if that's your intent, as opposed to, you know, wrestling biographies, they're putting their story out there. But this kind of thing where a journalist is going in and trying to find the truth, and, and even they can't unravel these things. It's, it's, it, it's very fun as I a mean, storyteller to, it, to watch this. It's interesting to think that, you know, in an industry that is make-believe, that you would have, you know what I mean? And I don't mean that uh, in, a, in a negative way, because I love wrestling too, but um, I rem I can't remember. I was watching one of the Vice. They do the uh, Dark Side Dark, of the Dark Ring. Side of the Ring, and, and I don't, I don't even know who the wrestler was because I had never heard of him before. But and but they were just talking about like his family would talk about how at the time when he was doing it, you couldn't be in public and not be your wrestling persona. Like they, you know, you would right. get in trouble. You you might get fired, lose your job, whatever. So like like he he would drive with his family to the airport and then say goodbye. And as soon as he got out of the car, he turned into this gigantic, scary wrestler. It's guy. Bruiser Brody. Bruiser I remember Brody, his yeah. wife was telling that yeah. story. She oh, said she uh, would watch him like take out his ponytail and transform into Bruiser Brody as he entered the airport. Yeah. 
It, it's amazing. It, it really it's it's is. such a character. It's so similar to comics in so many ways. And also, this is really what like politics and and our our commercial <laughs> journalism is today is all of these stories. It's like you're battling for to to assert your narrative. We're all the heroes of our own narrative. And, if you and, apply kayfabe to the world, <laughs> it will make a lot more sense. It really does. It, it's taken. I mean, I don't know if if you guys have had the same experience, but like once I hit my forties, it was like this weird realization that you know so much, so many decisions by people in their lives are made by like ego and and that sort of thing of like I'm you know it's like people are not very honest about who they are or if they're happy or what they're doing or, you know what I mean? And it's like, they make like really terrible decisions and then try and make up for it and try and justify it or try and or lie their way out of it. And it's like, I never understood that. I've always been a pretty straightforward person. Like I'm kind of who I am. This is who <laughs> you're full of shit, <laughs> but, um, I'm a damn video. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, that, it wasn't until like I hit my forties, like wow, people make a lot of crazy decisions because of of ego and like you know th- this weird narrative that they're trying to push about themselves. And I think they're even trying to believe it. You know, like people, you know, we we we're sure. trying to convince ourselves who we are. I think a lot of the time. So it's interesting how you you know yeah you can look at everything going on in the world today and and it's that same thing, crazy you know crazy things that people are trying to push as reality. What what ends up being reality? I don't know. I, you know, whatever is the most popular becomes the reality, I guess. Sure. Yeah. And well, I think I think a lot of people, um, a lot of the I don't want to I don't know what the right word is for this, but almost like the anxiety that we see kind of mm-hmm. going through social media, for example, or or mass media for that matter. I think a lot of it has to do with that fractured reality. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you had we, we started this conversation about how we all had three channels of television when we were little kids. That's a very controlled vision of the world. Sure. And now you think like 2 million people or 2 billion people or whatever on social media, you know, those are all channels. Like that's all glimpses of reality. And there's just no way to reconcile it. You know, like there is no one reality. Mm-hmm. It's all based on perception and, and, and perspective and things. So Walter Cronkite at one time was the most trusted man in, the, in America. Whatever he said was belief. You know, everyone believed it. It was the truth, whether it was or not. I mean, is there anyone anywhere today that is that people believe, you know, like there's it, there's no one. No. There's no one that is a trusted source in the world about anything like it's it's bizarre, which is probably a lot more true than than whatever Walter Cronkite was was spinning, <laughs> right. you know, even right. even if it was well intentioned, uh, you know, it's just we just did not have that perspective that we have now. And. That's tough. It's it's hard to reconcile. It's very comforting to think like this guy will tell us what's what each night, and yeah. Uh, yeah, you know I'll no go to bed and not have to worry anymore. about it. Yeah. It is. Well, it is. I know that uh, be, before before Jim leaves us uh, tonight, we absolutely want to spend some more time talking about Octobriana. Yes. This is uh, Octobriana seventeen or nineteen seventy six. This Just is, rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is your, um, as you said, already completed project, but it is on Kickstarter now. And uh, we talked about the the fluorescent uh, printing process, but. Uh, Go ahead. Give us some some background on on the character, because it's actually it's really fat. This is not you did not create this character. Correct. 
So yeah. fascinating story. So tell us about the project, why you're on Kickstarter, all that stuff. All right. So the character Octobriana comes from a book from 1971 called Octobriana and the Russian Underground by Peter Sadecki. And so this book showed up. I found it through one of those like books about weird comics. And the idea is in the 1960s, a group of dissidents in the Soviet Union created this character, superhero character, very inspired by Western superheroes, created this character basically to fight Soviet oppression that was, you know, of, of the 60s from the Soviet Union. And they would publish them in what they called Samizdat, which were zines. They were, it literally means publish it yourself. So there was these little underground newspapers or magazines. And this author smuggled a bunch of these out of the Soviet Union. He was a Czech author and he was like visiting for, to, as a guest lecturer or something like that and got connected to this group that was making these comics. So he smuggles these out of the Soviet Union and they publish them in England. And the guy that publishes them is this... Uh, very sort of a, a right-wing type historian, journalist, publisher, writer. And so I think he identifies this character as being revolutionary and, you know, advancing his, his worldview. <laughs> so he publishes this book. Years later, it ter turns out to be a hoax, but no one knows it at the time of publishing. And I don't think the publisher knew it, you know, like he writes an intro for it and really positions it as if like, this is going on and this is important. It was the cover of, of, uh, is it the Guardian? One of the big newspapers in London, it was, the, it made the cover like in advance of the book's publication. So it was a big deal, like a legitimate thing of like, this is, this is exciting what's happening in the world. It was exposed as a hoax eventually. But what happened is the character's public domain because it's, it's presented as this underground character. And so the conceit of my book is that American underground cartoonists found it in the seventies. It was published in 71. And so as a show of solidarity with their, fellow Russian underground cartoonist, they decided to make their own American underground comic of Octobriana. And that's Octobriana 1976. And it is printed with this blacklight technique because I was looking for something in the 70s because that's when I think of blacklight, uh, you know, like blacklight posters. And so like it all just kind of fit together. You know, I started this because I did a screen print that was blacklight in I think 2014. And in the process, I was like, I think you could print this like an offset comic book and just do spot colors instead of CMY. And so I talked to Chris Pitzer at Ad House Books, who I did Aphrodisiac with. I did notebook drawings with. Um, he's somebody that knows print inside and out and that I've done a bunch of books with, including Fluorescent Ink on the Street Angel hardcover that he published. So we got to dabble with Fluorescent Ink there. And uh, he seemed to think that it would work also, this idea I had to like swap out the inks. And so then it was just a matter of figure out a story that fits. And Octobriana was something that I was fascinated with just as a book. You know, we, we've kind of established that I love comics history. And this is one of the weirder books that I have found in comics history. And the more I started thinking about it, like it's this big, you know, kick ass superhero woman, fun to draw, looks really cool. And the setting and the time period were perfect. And so sprinkle in maybe uh, a little bit of Mike Mignola's amazing screw on head as inspiration, you know, to create like a one shot contained in one comic book adventure. That's a little bit fun, a little bit funny and action. And, uh, it, you know, it was a bunch of stuff that I wanted to draw like the uh, she's fighting Soviet oppression and that Soviet oppression is the gigantic robot Stalin, robot you know, Stalin. The, the manifestation. Robot Stalin sealed the deal for me. Yes. I was like, so, yes. <laughs> So that's that's the project in a nutshell. And uh, it's on Kickstarter because 
what happened is I was working on a graphic novel this year and it was, it was put on delay for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And I had this story just kind of popped in my head in like two days time. And I wrote it and I thought, all right, I'll see if I can get this done. And I was doing a bunch of, of tours this, this year, different comic book shows, you know, as a guest or just going as, you know, as an exhibitor, because I had street angel, deadliest girl alive. The image collection came out in November last year. And then I had the plain Janes come out the beginning of this year in January. So it was like about 750 pages worth of my comics were published in you know, a couple of months in the beginning of this year. And I was going to do a bunch of sh conventions to promote those. And I thought, I'm going to make this book with Ad House Books. We're going to publish it. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to show up at conventions with what I think will be the best looking comic book ever because of this fluorescent ink. Like it is going to scream at you from a great distance. <laughs> and so that was the plan. And then COVID happens and we're all home and there are no conventions. And I have this book that I am itching to see in print. And what do we do with it? So Kickstarter comes to the rescue in a lot of ways. And I, I like, you know, like I handle everything. I handle a lot of this stuff from production details that a lot of cartoonists don't do themselves to also like, how do I actually get this in front of people? And I'm always looking at distribution. I've wanted to do a Kickstarter for since I heard of it. And I just never had the right project. And it seemed like this might be the right project and the right time. You know, the book was done. I could really concentrate on whatever the experience with Kickstarter turns out to be. And uh, it has been kind of a busy experience. So it, it works out well that the book is drawn and ready to go. And uh, I think it's a chance, hopefully, to get my work in front of a bunch of people that maybe haven't heard of me before. Um, because I do think different people interact with comics in different places. So I plan to, you know, make sure this book goes through Diamond eventually and gets into comic book shops because I love them. But I know there are comic book readers outside of comic book shops and Kickstarter is a chance for me to experiment with. Can I reach more readers that way? So it's been exciting. It's been busy. We're just kind of starting in a lot of ways. The Kickstarter's only been going for um, about a week. Uh, uh, I started it. But, but totally funded. Totally funded. Yeah. I yes. mean, at this point it's happening by like, by like a lot. It's going well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going well. So thank you everybody that has supported it so far. Please keep sharing it. You know, I mean, what happens is, and, and I hunt these books down, these things that are interesting. There's, there's a company in Chicago that does risograph printing of Ghanaian movie poster paintings. And, you know, like these books come and go, like you'll hear about them two months later and they're sold out. So, you know, if you if you like this book, if you like this idea, please share it because it is going to be a different looking book. You know, no other comic looks like this. And uh, it's not something you can just print on demand if, if people want an extra copy. What we print is all there's going to be. So um, the Kickstarter is a good a good way to, to get hold of a copy. Where do awesome. I uh, where do I find a blacklight these days? There's no <laughs> that one's on you. <laughs> I used to have them. I you know I don't I don't have them anymore. So I, I gotta. I feel to... like uh, I would look at Spencer's, yeah. the, okay. the last mall store. Like uh, <laughs> man, show me a, a shopping mall that doesn't have a Spencer's. Yeah, right. They bought up all of the remaining black lights. I think so. They're, they're done after <laughs> after that. And it looks like you have some great uh, special offers on there too. You know, depending on the 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 um, contributions, you have a bunch of prints and different things that you're offering as well. Yeah, the prints are blacklight prints. Same same thing, except they're screen printed instead of offset printed. And this goes back to the first experience I had with blacklight. You know, printing or making something was a screen print, 
And the response was really strong to that. So I'm reprinting that print and I'm making two new prints. One is an aphrodisiac print, Chris, that you're going to probably want maybe in the background it's of, of your dope. videos. <laughs> and, pretty dope. And then one is an Octobriana print. So mm-hmm. yeah. I already uh, have Jim Rugg artwork in my background. Well, I, that's what I like to see. Those are my favorite <laughs> podcasters. I got to stop listening to you, man, because every time I listen to you, you cost me money, whether it's your money, your product or somebody else's. I, I end up spending money, but it's I love it. I, I honestly, seriously, uh, the show you and Ed do, I, I absolutely love your enthusiasm for comics because I've gone, I've like, you know, it's been a roller coaster over the years for me. There's times where I've loved comics. There's times where I, I don't love comics so much, or I, I fall out of love with comics and, you know, to see you guys have that sort of passion for it still and just the it, the pure enthusiasm it comes off so so much when i watch you guys so thanks for that i, I and the stuff you make as well like it, it just both of you guys do such a great job with your comics and and the love of comics is all in there and you can feel it so i i appreciate that stuff so much well thank you brian i'm, I'm glad to hear that because uh you know, there have been dark times in my life where comics really kind of saved me in a lot of ways. But as I said earlier, I can't imagine a better time to be a comics fan. You know, like I'm, I'm the biggest mark of all when it comes to comics. Uh, you know, I, I end up costing myself a lot of this money, too. <laughs> so I just tend to do it before I announce to the world, hey, look at this thing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty genuine. And it, it's been a real it's kind of been a real shot in the arm for me doing the show with Ed, um, because it is. When we first started, when we first met, we would we would meet up every week at New Comics Day and we would bring our pages along and you did not want to not have something new. You know, it was almost like positive peer pressure. And so we're kind of back at it again where, you know, he's making his new comic. I got to make my new comic. You know, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's kind of great. Feed off of one another. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Before we, I do have to ask you one other question, because I I years and years ago. I went to a Comic-Con and I met um, Rick Veach. And I love Rick Veach's work. And anyone who knows Rick's work, it's it's out there. I mean, you talk about weird stuff. He's been doing weird stuff for a long time. And when I met him, I was like, really? That's the guy that makes this crazy, <laughs> insane stuff? And I always wonder, like, do you have you ever had that sort of thing where, like, people have met you and sort of been surprised that you're the guy that's <laughs> you look so normal. Yeah. You yeah. look like, I mean, you know, like normal kind of guy. And it's like, well, really? He, this is Jim rug. I I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. I get that a lot. I got it a lot the year after aphrodisiac was published, yeah. yes. um, <laughs> but I, I get it. I get it all the time. You know, I mean, I, I did aphrodisiac and I was not what anyone expected. I did street angel and the plain Janes and I was not what anyone expected. So I do get that a lot, but, that's the world we live in now man it's it's real hard to figure out like just from you know a piece of art like who's behind it right right it's it's just funny it's just one of those things that that i think is kind of yeah and one of my one of my favorite parts about your art is your signature which never ceases to crack me up signature why is the signature crack you up i don't know i don't know your signature it looks like a six-year-old signature (laughs) which absolutely cracks me up as fine of an artist as you are and you have this hilarious signature that i am like are are some of the letters backwards it is i will show you a signature it is hilarious and i love it that's very funny it's uh completely unironic (laughs) it's just me signing my name (laughs) not a choice 
I thought I had the worst signature. It's the the one true Jim Rugg piece of style there. And (laughs) yeah, I I love it. I need to work on it, maybe. All right. Well, Mr. Jim Rugg, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. Please know that you are welcome back anytime you want to talk about your work or just comics in general. It's, uh, It's been a pleasure, man. Well, thank you so much, Chris and Brian. Thanks for having me. This was great. Unfortunately, we couldn't get Tom on. He had a flood. Uh, today. Yeah, he was Tom, planning Tom on coming on, but unfortunately, he he couldn't make it. But yeah, thanks and and uh, hope he doesn't Ed, keep his comics down there. <laughs> I know that was I had water in a room where like I have I had a I had to build a shelf for like all my giant absolute editions that you made me buy. So uh, and there was like water in that room. Like no, no, God, not there. That would be expensive. <laughs> yeah, there's some stuff in there I would not want to have to try and replace, but. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Tom wanted to be on, but thanks for, thanks for coming on and, and tell Ed if, if, you know, if he'd ever like to come on, we'd love to, to talk to him as well, for sure. So you guys, uh, you know, do an awesome job and thanks again. Thank you guys so much. All right, Jim, stay safe out there or in there or wherever you are. And, uh, and yeah, have a good one, man. Thanks a lot. Good night guys. Good night. Good night.